This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Support for this podcast comes from U.S. Bank. U.S. Bank wants to know how you reward yourself because they have cards that make every day more rewarding. Are you a points order, cashback guru, low intro APR lover? With U.S. Bank, it's up to you because they have the cards to fit your lifestyle. So earn more whether you're shopping at a gas station or grocery store, even while planning a staycation. Learn more at usbank.com slash credit card. U.S. Bank credit cards are issued by U.S. Bank National Association N.D. Some restrictions may apply. Member FDIC. Hi there, hockey fans, and welcome back to Rotowire's signature NHL hockey pod podcast with Statsman and AJ. Friends, I'm Paul Bruno in Toronto, Ontario, and you can follow me at Statsman22. My co-host, as always, is AJ Scholes. He's a great follow at AJ Scholes24, back in the co-host chair from Madison, Wisconsin. How are you doing today, pal? I'm doing good, Paul. You know, uh, it's funny you mentioned co-host chair. I don't actually have a chair at, with my at-home setup. I don't know what other people are doing with their work from home, but I'm set up uh, on my bar at home, my basement bar at home. Uh, so I've been standing, uh, you know, for this work at home order during the day. Um, I definitely would encourage any of our listeners, if if you haven't tried that before, uh, definitely check it out because I have been uh, feeling pretty good lately. And uh, from, you know, everything I've read, it's, it's good to not just sit in a chair all day. So, um, you know, try it out. But Aside from that, I will just uh, remind our listeners that throughout the week, if you have questions about your, you know, dynasty lineups or your your hockey team, whichever team you cheer for, or really if you want to get in uh, your take on any of the the articles that we're discussing or any of the things that we're talking about on the show, we would love to interact with you. We had a bit of a, a back and forth with friend of the show uh, Daniel Negranu. Uh, just the other day about uh, our Seattle expansion series and kind of a back and forth on on social media about how we saw it, how he saw it. And really, we love doing that with uh, any and all of our listeners. So we would encourage uh, all of you to feel free to interact with us. So as Paul mentioned, uh, you can follow me at AJ Schultz 24 and you can follow Paul the Statsman at Statsman22. Well, AJ, you mentioned that we had a lot of fun with uh, the social media in the last week with Daniel Negreanu's uh, reaction to our, I guess we've got to call it a hot take now, on, on the Jesperi Kotkaniemi call that we made on Montreal's protected list in, ahead of the Sa- Seattle expansion roster. It just highlights a number of difficult, difficult choices that teams are going to have to make, and uh, we went a bit out on a limb, I'll say that, uh, up front in that particular call, and... Uh, not surprising that we got a lot of feedback on some of the some of the decisions that we made because it is going to be very difficult some, for some of the teams to protect 
only seven forwards, only three defensemen and one goalie in most cases. And uh, that series uh, kind of blew up for us uh, in a good way in terms of the feedback that we got overall. And you did a great job with the articles, AJ. I commend you for the, that work on Rotowire's hockey site. And I guess you're embarking on a new mission to entertain our readers uh, at Rotowire with an upcoming series that we're going to touch on in these uh, upcoming episodes of our show as well, where we're going to take a look at individual teams and the salary cap issues that they face or will face in the upcoming months. And you've taken a bit of a random approach in terms of selecting teams off the top that we're going to profile. We're going to look at Boston, Chicago, and Anaheim today and their cap structures and decisions that they have to face before next season rolls around. I mean, we haven't even talked about the fact this season is over. We don't know yet, but certainly those salary cap decisions are in the... uh, in the front window of, of teams in terms of their planning, and they got to address them in the next little while, so we're going to help them along with our calls. And if we have time, we're going to re- revert back to our series of redrafting the uh, amateur draft from the 2014 season, a top-heavy one in terms of high-end skilled players, but then it drops off precipitously, so it's going to be interesting to see where our picks go after the first few. AJ, but I want to give you the floor and explain to us the thinking behind the salary cap uh, analysis that you're undertaking for the teams that we're going to talk about today and in subsequent weeks. Yeah, absolutely. So it's it's interesting that, uh, you know, it kind of comes off random, and I, I totally agree with that, but there is a method kind of going on here uh, to the madness. So uh, for the first week of the, the series, um, which we're calling Cap Compliance on the on the website, I put out a Twitter poll with the first alphabetical team from each division. Uh, and then the top three vote getters uh, were the ones that we profiled this week. And so that was Boston, Chicago, and Anaheim. Uh, you know, looking ahead to the future, uh, I did another poll. Uh, Carolina was the the metro representative on that list, so I carried them over, and then we did you know another poll, and for whatever reason nobody wants to talk about the Carolina Hurricanes, <laughs> so unfortunately we're going to be skipping them this week, which uh, I think is also unfortunate because it means we're pushing off even talking about a metro team at all. So if you're a Carolina fan or just a fan of any team in the metro division, I would encourage you next week to make sure to vote for the Carolina Hurricanes so we can start looking at them. So uh, just to give a brief overview of the schedule moving forward, we've got Buffalo will come out today. Uh, Then we'll have Arizona after that, and then Colorado uh, as the third team. So Arizona will be on Thursday, Colorado on Saturday. So that's kind of where we're headed. In terms of uh, how this kind of all started, I thought it would be really interesting, uh, you know, to look at, the cap situation for next year, assuming a flat cap, which is kind of what we're hearing. Although I did recently read some uh, an interview with uh, Penguins GM Jim Rutherford, and he even alluded to the possibility of a lower cap, uh, which would be uh, a really kind of interesting thing. I, I agree, Paul. We've touched on it briefly, uh, the idea of them getting like a free player that they can essentially waive the contract, buy out the contract, and, and not have to worry about the cap implications. I think if they end up going with a lower cap, that's absolutely going to be what they have to do because I've already, in these first three articles, had to make some pretty tough decisions in terms of just keeping, uh, you know, keeping the team in place. 
and re-signing free agents. So that's kind of where we're going. Uh, I don't know, Paul, do you have any questions off the top that maybe I didn't address or, or thoughts on, on the process here? I think it's going to unfold pretty clearly with uh, our look at the three teams. You've really laid it out well on the on the uh, articles that you've done, AJ. So again, I'm going to leave it to you to, to lay it all out, pick, a, pick whatever of the three teams you want to start with, and I'll follow along with my comments about choices that I would make that might differ from your suggestions. And we also want to touch on what Kyle has suggested too. So uh, I I invite you to to lead with your thoughts on a team and then I'll maybe fill in with Kyle or my own thoughts uh, on on those same clubs. Yeah, absolutely. So the first uh you know the first one we touched on was Boston. They were the top vote getter in that first poll. Um and so we looked at their situation you know, again, I, I can't shout them out enough, and, and I should uh, do this more, but we are using the numbers from our friends at catfriendly.com. They're who I used uh, for the Seattle series, and we're using their numbers again here today because they're just a phenomenal resource on everything uh, cap and contract uh, related. So you look to next season with the Bruins. They've already got 12 forwards, five defensemen, and two netminders under contract. Um, and that's going to eat up about 62 million of their cap space. So that leaves them, you know, with less than 20 million in terms of filling out that 23-man roster um, with that, you know, 81, uh, 81.5 cap. They do also have David Backus's retained salary contract on the hook for another 1.5. So you're really kind of digging into that cap. Um, obviously. There's a big elephant in the room in terms of players that they need to resign. But I'll start with the restricted free agents. And then, Paul, we'll, I'll have you kind of dive in on your thoughts on these three guys. So our restricted free agents uh, that, that are, you know, kind of NHL players, uh, we'll take the minors separately here, are Anders Bjork, Jake DeBrusque, and Matt Grzelczyk. And I think the real kind of hardest one here is probably DeBrusque. He is coming off an entry-level deal, but he's got really good numbers. I think we're going to see what we have most often seen in this case is some sort of three-year bridge deal. The kind of convenience of the bridge deal is that for most of these guys, there are some other factors due to age, but most of these guys, a three-year deal retains them as an RFA at the end of the deal. And so sometimes the team's willing to give a little bit more money to retain those RFA rights when the contract comes up. And I think your buddy, uh, Toronto's Casper Kapanen, is kind of a good baseline for where DeBrus deal is going to be. Uh, you know, I'm thinking three-year, $10 million somewhere in there. Uh, you know, these guys, unfortunately for them, don't have a lot of negotiating power. And I think that uh, really kind of brings things into question here. Now, uh, Brandon Carlo signed. He's one year into a two-year $5.7 million deal. I think Rizeltic will want uh, more than that. Uh, so, you know, something close, um, but a little bit higher. Uh, and then I don't think Anders Bjork gets much more than like a million dollars a year. And again, another two to three year deal is probably most likely for him in terms of, you know, a bridge contract retaining those RFA rights. Paul, do you see something different on, on these restricted free agents? Uh, guys, is there anybody you would just let walk? I, I know how rare that is with RFAs, but it's certainly possible uh, when we get into all this. Yeah, Bjork would be third of the three in terms of overall value to the club based on what he's shown in his first couple of seasons with the league, the team. But I don't think uh, the jury's out on him yet in terms of where he ultimately would fit in. I project him maybe as a, ultimately a third-line player there. And so 
beginning with him, his, he's coming off a salary cap hit of $925,000. i am sure they could get him for less than $2 million a year on, on a bridge deal, if you want to call it, a chance for him to look at saying, I want to be here, a part of this really solid team for the next couple of years. I might have a really good opportunity. And that, AJ, that lends me to a comment that I was thinking about when you were talking here. We're looking at the salary cap situation with Boston. Really, they have a, a fair bit of money here to spend. Uh, when you look at the RFAs, and there's only one UFA that is going to cause them a lot of grief, I think, and we're going to get to him shortly. But in terms of the RFAs, I think they'll have an opportunity to keep them in a reasonable uh, cap range because the high-end guys on this team, they were signed a few years ago, and they're locked up for a few years going forward. And so it's very difficult for player X, Y, Z to come in and say, I want to make more money than Patrice Bergeron and David Pasternak, who are the club leaders here. So you know where I'm going with that? They've got a kind of an artificial cap within their structure because of the quality of these players. And so it's going to be difficult for any player on this roster to command more money than what these guys are getting, at least on the surface. That, that's, I think, a limiting factor in terms of their ask. But certainly to your point, uh, apart from Bjork, they have an issue with DeBrusque. He's shown me quite enough in the first three years to say this guy's a top six forward on most clubs in the league and and he projects to be a 20 to 25 goal scorer 50 point guy for me and for that i think you have to pay up upwards of you know two and a half three three and a half three and a half million a year on a short-term deal to see if he can take the next step uh, to go even more elite in terms of uh, his productivity to the team and then uh, the final piece uh, of the three matt grizzlick you mentioned a defenseman who has uh we wormed his way into the top four D men uh, from time to time in the Boston circumstance. He's been a rather he- healthy guy too. Uh, when you compare the injury woes that other players on the on that depth chart have, have struggled to stay healthy, so Grizzlick has a value here, and he, he's moved up and down from second to third pairing. He's even got some time on the power play from time to time, though it's been limited, I'll say. And uh, I think he's a guy that that could go up uh, over the three million mark per year in terms of a salary cap uh, commitment. Well, yeah, we'll take a look then uh, at our unrestricted free agents. And this is where things, I think, always get a little bit more fun. Now, obviously, there are teams that have guys uh, heading into RFA contracts that need big raises and, and stuff like that. But the unrestricted free agents is where things always seem to get a little more interesting. And we've got four guys to really look at here. There's uh, Nordstrom, Zdeno Chara, who's, you know, the veteran kind of, he's the Boston guy, right, who uh, took a discount uh, to come back. And then Kevin Miller, who hasn't really played uh, at all this year. And so, uh, of course, then the big name, the one that everybody's going to be talking about is Tory Krug, um, was making $5.25 million this last year. He's 29 years of age. You know, unfortunately for Krug, when he came into the league, that second contract wasn't really the big deal that it's become now. Um, with a lot of these younger guys, um, like Matthews, Marner for, for Toronto, that second deal seems to be the big one where everybody gets huge money and all that stuff. When Tory Krug was signing his second deal, that wasn't the case now. And now he's on the older side of that where guys aren't getting the big deal. So Tory Krug, I think, is going to be looking for some money because – you know, relatively speaking, I know I just said he makes $5.25 million a year. I'd love, you know, a fifth of that. But relatively speaking, uh, he's not making a significant amount compared to other players of his caliber. And so I, I think he's going to be looking for a big deal. Would I put that in comparison to 
is I thought Ryan Sutter is a good kind of comparison. They're, they're similar in terms of production for the most part. Uh, Sutter's making $7.5 million a year. And so I would expect that's about what Tory Krug would be asking for. Now, if you make a lot of the decisions that I previously made here uh, in this article, I encourage you to read the whole thing. Um, you'll see that they have about $7.5 million in cap space once you sign uh, Zidane Chara. I would expect him to be on a, you know, a one-year kind of incentive-heavy deal like he was this last year. I think you know, they could get him in for that $2 million mark again. That's what he made this last year. I think Nordstrom uh, is, is the easy choice. I think you just let him walk. I don't think he offers enough in terms of where this team needs to go, especially when you guys got like uh, Par Lindholm looking for more time. You know, we mentioned Anders Bjork is, is another guy looking for some more ice time. So, uh, uh, you know, I think you let Nordstrom walk. I think that's the easiest choice for them to save some money there. Uh, and then Kevin Miller, you know, unfortunately, I just think he is tied to whether or not uh, Krug uh, gets re-signed. If they can't re-sign Krug, they've expressed interest in keeping him around. And he'd be a pretty relative cap savings. I think they would sign him for about what he made last year, $2.5 million, uh, if they brought him back. Uh, again, I've seen a couple articles that you know Don Sweeney wants to bring him back. But I think that's dependent on Tory Krug. I would offer Tory Krug the $7.5 million, uh, you know, that I think he's going to want and, and see if you can get the deal done there. That would, as you mentioned, Paul, make him the highest paid player on the entire team. Uh, he would get just... Uh, a little bit more uh, uh, than David Krejci. So, you know, that is a really good point. I think the other factor at play here uh, that we didn't really talk about in the article is kind of a depressed market right now. Um, Yaroslav Halak just signed a deal while we were writing this article. So originally we had Halak as a free agent in this, and I projected his money to go up because he's been playing more games. So I said he'd be around $3.25 million. Um, he signed for about a million dollars less than that because there seems to be an acknowledgement by the players that with everything happening and the finances and the flat cap, um, that the money's just not there. So I think that's an important factor as well that's going to shape how the rest of these articles start to look out uh, towards the future is that there's kind of just a depressed market and, and guys want the security of being signed next year more than they're willing to make that kind of standoff for more uh, cash. So I, I wouldn't be surprised to see some more guys like Halak who actually take less money heading into next year just to make sure that they're signed and have a paycheck. So those are my uh, takes on the un, uh, the UFA pool here. Paul, what say you? I think you handled that well, that part extremely well in terms of explaining Halak's decision, AJ, buying into a team culture here that I don't think exists in a lot of NHL cities, including Toronto, where it seems like every player on the Leaf roster, when they were negotiating, wanted to get every last dollar that they could out of the club and to heck with the salary cap structure. The guys like Halak have conceded that they have a really good team or the chance to win so why not take a bit of a haircut if if it's a chance to stick around and be a part of something that could be really special and it sends a message throughout the rest of the lineup i mean six or seven million dollars what's the difference 
if you gave me, me that, I could live comfortably for the rest of my life, and so could my next generation. That's the reality of the situation. These guys are each going to, you know, some of the star players, they make over $100 million in their career these days if they stay healthy enough. But let's go through the exercise, uh, and I'll give you my slant on, on the UFA situations. I think Nordstrom is the guy on thin ice, like you said. He's going to be heading into his age 29 season and coming off a year where he made a million dollars, and that tells you the story about him he's a depth player here definitely a bottom six guy not a threat to move up beyond that so if he wants to stick around he's got to stay in that na- same neighborhood salary wise and besides that they have prospects coming through the system that might rate more ice time that than he ha- has earned in the last couple of years so he's the one on thin ice there they'll fit him in if they can and if they judge that maybe he is the best of, of, a, of the rest when it comes down to the bottom six types and then Zdeno Chara he uh, exemplified what I'm talking about. At 43 years of age, he's not going to command 7 or $8 million a year, despite the fact he's still a big-time minute eater for this team and a real physical specimen that's in great, great shape, maybe the most physically fit of, of most of the NHL players still at, at, at this uh, relatively advanced hockey age, I'll say. And so he took a $2 million contract last year, incentive-laden, as you said, and, and maybe he does the same thing and they, af- they can afford to pay him to be a part of their top four D-men at that low salary uh, commitment. So that leaves them some opportunity to, to look at Tory Krug's situation. But what complicates Krug's situation for me, uh, AJ, is a look at his games played uh, stats for the last three seasons. In the 2017-18 season, he missed only six games. But in the 18-19 season, he missed 18 games. And then this year, he was relatively healthy and he appeared in 61 games out of the 70 or so that they played so in each of the last three seasons he's missed a significant chunk of time and and they got to wonder if they've got an asset that's breaking down it certainly looks that way when you look at the games played by Krug and the fact is that they have uh, his successor in terms of a power play linchpin in in tow when you look at the fact they have Charlie McAvoy signed for the next three years. And McAvoy, seven years younger, signed the bridge deal at $4.9 million over the next three seasons. So, so that's a really good signing that they undertook there. And, and it brings us back to the discussion of Krug. He's coming off 5.25, probably deserves a raise, but then that injury specter for me says, can I really consent to committing to this guy for five years or five six years take him to his age 35 season at maybe seven million a year that could wind up looking kind of ugly if he continues with these injury problems and that's my assessment there of of the ufas on the bruins so we'll take uh one look at some of the minor league guys now for the article series i thought it was important to kind of limit uh you know who we're talking about here and and there's going to be plenty of teams that have you know minor league uh, guys uh, that are on RFA deals or even UFA deals that we're not going to necessarily talk about. And the reason we focus on guys who appeared in a game this last season is the general thought process is, you know, a guy who didn't play in any NHL games last year uh, is going to probably get a qualifying offer from the team and he's probably just going to sign it. Um, there's not going to be too much discussion or heartburn on either side about that. And so, Uh, That's kind of why we left those alone. But in terms of those guys who currently uh, are listed as minor, you know, minor league players uh, who appeared in an NHL game this past season, you have Brett Ritchie, Zachary Sishin, Carson Kuhlman, Brendan Gauntz, and Peter Solarik. Uh, I will say off the bat, I'm probably going to 
murder some of these. I do my best with it, and I apologize to our listeners that our Boston fans are fans of other teams that are cringing as I say some of these names. But unfortunately, uh, you know, I, I'm doing the best I can here, and hopefully uh, we can get better as we go along here. I think three of these are pretty straightforward. Uh, Session, Gauntz, and Serlaric uh, should probably just get qualifying offers that are two-year deals or two-way deals, rather, that allow them to move up and down. I think there shouldn't be too much um, you know, discussion around those ones even. Um, the only thing I could see you maybe considering is that you would uh, maybe, if you thought one of them could be an NHL player, I've seen deals out there where you actually save money, you offer them less overall uh, in terms of salary, but you make it a one-way deal if you think they're going to be in the NHL uh, anyway for you and so that's one route you know you save a little bit of money because they're willing to take less to get a one-way deal and not have to worry um, about that time in the minors you know for most of these guys if you look at their contracts uh, if a guy's making 800,000 in the NHL on a two-way deal when he's in the minors he's making 80,000 so uh, you know you can't overlook the importance of, of having that uh, that two-way or a one-way deal over a two-way the most intriguing uh, one uh, overall for me, I think, uh, is Carson Kuhlman and, and what you would do for that. Um, again, a qualifying offer for him would be 735000 Uh So I think the Bruins probably uh, could easily get him under contract for less than a million. And they look good by giving him a bump above what his qualifying offer would be. I pegged it somewhere in the 900000 range. For one to two years. Again, this is another one that maybe they could even go less if they were willing to make it a one-way deal. And then Brett Ritchie has the most NHL experience of any of these guys and I think uh, would probably be worth uh, a bump. Now, his current contract is not a two-way deal, so they're paying him a million dollars whether he's in the NHL or the AHL. Um, so I would expect you know, he's not going to take a two-way deal, so it's going to have to be one-way uh, if they want to re-sign him here. I think 1.9 uh, is not outrageous uh, in terms of an annual uh, value on that. It's definitely high, but I think this is a guy that's going to be a full-time NHLer for them next year, and so I think that's why you're looking at a little bit higher deal. He's got the you know 268 games under his belt, which is way more than anybody else, especially if you're going to let a guy like Nordstrom walk in free agency. Uh, I think you can kind of benefit by bringing in uh, you, you know, Richie on, on a deal. So that's how I took uh, these couple of minor leaguers with an NHL game appearance this last season. Paul, uh, how did these guys shake out for you? Well, I think you got to look at what the forward structure is right now and the contract situation there. There's four guys that I count that are going to be UFAs or RFAs within, within the next year or two. So I think going short term, would be the play for some of the players that you mentioned, giving themselves an opportunity to prove themselves in line with those other contracts needing to be re-upped and causing the Bruins to reflect to get cheaper, younger players uh, who might be able to contribute. Look at Brett Ritchie, for example. This guy fits the Bruin mold to a T, a tough guy who has the ability to score a little bit, and it really looks to me like a a prototypical third-line guy in the Boston mold. Currently on a $1 million deal, I think it's easy for me to see that he'll be a part of the mix going forward if he agrees to something in the 1.5 for a year and uh, to prove himself. And then you got you can say the same thing maybe about Sinitian, who is not a guy who is known 
with the same physical attributes, but certainly has some offensive upside there on the right wing, coming off an $863,000 hit. Again, reasonable to expect that he would be in the low one millions if you wanted to re-up. But the, the thing is, he's got to show something, even at the minor league level, to be a scoring a prodigy, uh, I'll say, uh, of some sort to, to merit inclusion into the top six down the road and uh, make his case. And I think the same can be said for Carson Kuhlman, maybe the top prospect of the three in terms of, of overall o- offensive upside, maybe a two-way player of note too, uh, who they, they think highly of. He might be the best of the three uh, forwards that I'm going to cover in, in my rebuttal to your comments. He's coming off his age 24 season, and now's the time that he should be really ready to show something in terms of uh, meeting some of those offensive, these uh, high expectations for offensive production. On the back end, uh, you're looking at more, maybe the goalie situation is one I want to highlight, AJ. You didn't really touch on Daniel Vladder, but I'll say this. The guy's coming off an outstanding season in Providence where his goals against was under two per game. And when you look at the age of the incumbent goalies here, you mentioned that they did re-sign Halak for a team-friendly hit over the next uh, season or season and at 2.25 i'm telling you if flatter repeats what he did last year he'll easily make a case for being the backup goalie uh, and maybe look uh, look uh, at him as being the goaltender of the future depending on tuka rask's plans he has made some noise recently about recanting his earlier call that he might consider retirement at the end of the season by saying you know he might pull a tom brady and play till he's 45 so interesting take by him that was revealed in the last couple of days and it it just underscores the need to have depth in the minor leagues because you never know when one of these other players may decide to pack it all in and uh, they have I think pretty good insurance in the nets with Daniel Vladder. Well for you know for kind of final thoughts here to to wrap up Boston um, you know the one thing I will say is if you know if they want to get into the free agent you know free agent market here um, they're going to have to let Tory Crew walk. Now I said 7.5 million and, and that got, got them under the cap in, in my kind of number crunch here. So if you go Kevin Miller instead for 2.5, that's $5 million on the open market, which could be, you know, pretty intriguing uh, in terms of who they could get, especially as I talked about a depressed value here. For me, I don't really see the benefit there. I think Krug is not a, a replaceable piece necessarily. And they don't need anything dramatically. They've got a pretty solid top six. So I would personally rather invest the money in keeping Tory Krug around if I can. Um, but, you know, certainly I, I think they could be, if they go with Kevin Miller instead, uh, they could be an intriguing player on the open market with, like I said, probably about five, you know, four to five million uh, in available, uh, you know, funds there. Paul, any final thoughts on, on the Boston Bruins? I, you know what, I revert back to my first comment saying this is one team that kind of got it right a few years ago in terms of setting a, an artificial ceiling, if you will, with the signing of some of their better players to long-term deals that at the time they were up against the cap, but now as the cap has risen over the last two years, there is some excess capacity that's given them the uh, ability to to shop around to fit pieces in as they needed them and to get spend money on a, on a quality backup goalie which certainly separated them from the pack and allowed them to really take advantage of the of the skill set that Tuka Rask has giving them proper rest 
and giving them an advantage over teams that really leaned heavily on those players that the goalies have played more than 60 games a year consistently and were kind of worn out by the time the postseason rolled around. That's played a big role in, in a lot of extended runs by the Bruins in the last few years, and, and it's, no, it's in no small part to the fact that they have uh, instituted basi- basically an artificial high end to the salary cap, and it's going to be challenged by, with the Krug situation this offseason. I'm really curious to see how that plays out. Uh, maybe they will alter their, their course from the path that I just described. Well, that's a pretty convenient lead-in to take a look at our next team, the Chicago Blackhawks, because this is a team whose top-end guys did not take any sort of discount. You've got Patty Kane and Jonathan Taves making $10.5 million each. Uh, that, you know, that's a lot of money tied up in just two players. Um, you've also got Alex DeBrincat is going to go from being uh, on his entry-level deal and, and a, a steal, obviously, to next year, he'll be the third highest player on that team, making $6.4 million. Uh, so there's not a lot of cap room for the Chicago Blackhawks, and they've got some tough, tough decisions coming. Looking at their roster, they do have 12 for uh, under contract for next season and eight defensemen. No netminders currently signed uh, for next season, which is you know certainly an, an interesting position for them to be in here. Uh, so you look at all those numbers, it adds up to a price tag of just over $74 million. Again, at that flat cap of $8.15 million, it leaves the club with about $9.8 available in salary cap space and just three spots to fill, uh, technically speaking. But this is a team uh, that is going to have some very tough decisions to make here. And it starts right off the top with their restricted free agent pool. You've got Drake Kajula, Dominic Kubalik. Dylan Strom, all three guys who have been uh, top, con- you know, big contributors for them this season, having breakout years. Um, and then you add in, you've got Slater Cuckoo and Malcolm Subban kind of rounding out the rest. Look, for me, uh, I think the easiest thing to try and do here is to try and move Cuckoo and Subban um, because you still have their RFA rights. You know, you don't necessarily want to let them, uh, you know, not give them a qualifying offer and let them hit the open market. However, I will say uh, if that's if you can't find somebody that's willing to take uh, either of those guys, I think it's fine to let them hit the open market. In the, in the case of Cuckoo, you've got a guy like Nick Sealer who's under contract uh, next year and is kind of a, a cheaper option at just seven uh, 725,000. And then, uh, Subban, I just, I know they brought him in, uh, I think as just a placeholder really heading into, uh, when they let, uh, uh, I'm blanking on their backup netminder at the time, but they traded him to uh, Vegas. And I think they have Colin Delia who will come in and compete, uh, for the potentially compete for the starting job with Corey Crawford next year. So I see them letting Malcolm Subban and Cuckoo walk if they can't find uh, a trade partner there. For Kubalik, I looked at uh, Pavel Buchnevich in terms of a guy whose deal seems to fit uh, as a bridge uh, for the restricted free agency. Again, to retain that RFA right at the end, I thought two years, $7 million would work pretty well for Kubalik based on just, you know, really one year um, of, you know, overall experience here. Strom has had less points this year, but did have a 20 goal season the year before. I think ultimately those factors give him a slightly uh, higher 
uh, you know, deal on a three to four year as well. I said about four years, $3.75 million annually uh, would pair up well with Alex Kerfoot from uh, Toronto. So uh, the other you know, player that might just end up being expendable here is Drake Kajula. That's hard to say, but he's already at $1.5 million. So if you have to pay him more, um, you know, and those other two guys are going to eat up a, a big part of your price tag, Kajula would... Uh, probably garner more interest on the open market so there's something to kind of play with there Um, i just don't see how they could get all five of these guys signed uh, with that minimal cap space and ultimately for me i think two at best in terms of the restricted free agents here is what you're looking at for me it's kugelik and strom uh paul uh you know do you have a bit of a different take do you like some of the other guys or do you think it's possible they could get you know, more than just two of these RFAs signed. Uh, first of all, I'll say the the goalie's name that you were searching for was Robin Leonard, I think. Thank uh, you. That, that went to Vegas, and that he would have looked really good as the de facto starter going forward here. Well, my thought on the Chicago situation, of course, they have a quandary in the nets because out of that $9 million that you highlighted in terms of an excess capacity, AJ, they got to find two goalies that they're going to keep. Certainly, uh, Corey Crawford is not going to command $6 million if he signs again. And then you looked at Malcolm Subban. They didn't show him a lot of faith by not even giving him a game since he came on board from Las Vegas last year. He's coming off an RFA of hit of $850,000. And you also highlighted Colin D'Elia below the line in in terms of uh, his cap commitment, they, he signed for a couple of years at a million dollars going forward. So assuming that he's part of the mix going forward, that may give them a tad bit more flexibility to say, okay, maybe they pair him with Subban and give him another one and a half. So that takes care of the goaltending dilemma that you highlighted. Then in terms of the forward situation, you've got about five, four or five million bucks to look at what to do with, with the likes of... Uh, of the three players that you mentioned up front. Certainly the guy that I like the most out of the, out of the three is Dylan Strom. He was on pace for another 50-plus point season, and I think he's just scratching the surface uh, of being the player that I think he could be. He was a uh, top-five draft pick in his draft year, a very high-end high draft that, that it was, and finally showing some, some signs over the last year and a half that he's going to be the player that he was in junior hockey, a dominant, big, rangy, physical two-way center. I love the the makeup of this kid. You can tell I'm gushing about him a little bit. And uh, then you've got Dominic Kubelik, who proved to me he's a pretty pretty solid scorer, a guy that might be on the fringe of top six uh, contention on, on this roster going forward. And that means Drake Kajula is an expendable piece, but boy, he's proven to be a very valuable commodity in their lineup, filling in anywhere from the first, second, or third lines in their offensive mix. So uh, they they have to probably get a shoehorn to do it to get all three of the guys in their lineup and that means that a guy like Slater Cuckoo might be the the guy that slips through the cracks here and that's a shame because this is a team that's really really thin on the blue line when you consider Duncan Keith heading into his age 37 season uh, Oli Mata, a guy that you know you lost a little bit of faith in. Connor Murphy is a guy that should be a, a fixture in the top four here, but it drops off precipitously after that with the likes of Boquist, Carlson, and Bodwin uh, filling in uh, slots four, five, and six on the defensive structure. So really a very thin blue line is, is the likely outcome for the situation in Chicago and uh, very cheap goaltending, but it could be adequate. So I think the the solution is to try and the problem rather rather is to find a 
defense that that fits into this structure. It's going to be a real tight fit, though. Absolutely, and you highlighted the the net mining, um, but their lone uh, UFA that they have to worry about off the NHL roster here is Corey Crawford. Now, you mentioned you don't think he'll be making $6 million uh, next season, and I certainly agree with that (laughs) with the concussion uh, concerns plus the fact that he's 35 years of age. I agree. He's not making $6 million. Now, my suggestion was I thought they could get him back one to two years, about three to four million uh, average annual value on that. And I thought that would be reasonable for both sides and, and leave them with some room. Now, my uh, you know cohort in these articles, Kyle Riley, uh, is a huge Blackhawks fan. So this was his team uh, as we were discussing it. And he thought that the Yaroslav Halak deal, that two, uh, you know, maybe give uh, Crawford an extra year, but right around that uh, 2.75 million, 2.25 million uh, that Halak just took uh, might be a good marker here. And that would certainly save, uh, you know, them some significant money. Paul, uh, I know you touched on Corey Crawford a little bit. Do you think he's even worth bringing back on on either of those kind of mentions? My kind of higher AAV at three million, Kyle's uh, closer to two and a half. Is it even worth it to to spend that money, or do you go with like you said, Malcolm Subban and uh, Colin Delia? I think you got to pivot away from Crawford. He'd be heading into his age thirty six season, AJ, and this is a Hawks team that that has to be looking at something of a rebuild anyway. So why not start that process by pivoting away from what would be a bigger dollar commitment to Crawford and going a little cheap on the net mining situation? You're going to take a hit because I don't think they're going to have a defensive structure to support uh, a strong team or a team with a positive outlook in the very near term. So I say cut your losses and, and go a little bit younger and try and start looking at building with cheaper pieces that might have a bit more runway in terms of what they can offer you in terms of upside, in terms of their talent base and, and certainly their, their projected longevity in the league. So I do think that Corey Crawford's on thin ice in terms of extending his career in Chicago. And uh, I wonder if they did retain him, even at that lower salary that you suggest, it might really limit them in terms of the three pieces offensively and certainly grease the, the rails for Cuckoo to, to leave for sure. Well, we'll kind of gloss over the the minor league free agents here. Um, They only have one guy, uh, you know, with uh, an expiring contract who played in an NHL game last year, and that's uh, Anton Whedon. As you see in my article, if if you've checked it out or if you're going to, I started off uh, with saying who is Anton Whedon to to even begin with. Uh, Played four games for the Hawks this year. He actually already signed uh, with a team over in Sweden. So we're not really going to touch on him. He's going overseas didn't really work out there. So I'll dive into my final thoughts. And and this is where things I think most get interesting. I think there's really two things that the Blackhawks need to prioritize. The first of which uh, is to try and get somebody to take Brent Seabrook and that uh, $6.875 million contract. Uh, The team does have a pair of third round picks in 2020. So I think that's where I start my offer. If I just don't see the math working out, and personally I don't, I would throw Drake Kajula's rights into the deal as well. Um, if you, if it's a team that maybe needs a net minder or is, or is thin in net mining, you could throw Malcolm Subban in there. I understand it's a lot to give up uh, for little return. You know, I'm sure they would get something back um, on the flip side, but 
really you're about trying to offload that contract and it, it's just become a huge huge struggle for them in terms of the cap moving forward especially under the circumstances we're talking about you know just a couple months ago before all uh you know all hell broke loose for lack of a better term here um with you know the the shutdown and everything they were projecting 84 million as a potential cap teams planning for that are now looking at 81 and a half that's that's a whole like solid player or two or three up and coming players like that's a lot of money to suddenly be out of there and so if it's not seabrook if they just can't find a way to make that work i think they have to consider buying out calvin dehan's deal um it would save you about 2.5 million for 2020 uh, i would save you 3.8 million the year after that and then of course you know it does push that off so you would have that buyout of 1.6 million for the two years following but i think overall that's just so much upfront savings for for buying out Calvin DeHaan's deal. He's had that shoulder injury. You're not really sure how that's how that's going to go. I will tell you, I think uh, if they went with some sort of free buyout, uh, you know, deal where you don't have to eat the cap hit, uh, I think DeHaan is still even the better option over a guy like Brent Seabrook because there's just even if you're not factoring in the cap hit, there's so many years of Seabrook's deal left. Um, you know, that's four, four more years after this year, which means you're paying him. I know it's not against the cap, but you still have to physically pay him for eight years. That's a long time to be given a guy some money to not play for your team. So I actually think Dahan would be the better choice uh, in terms of that overall. So those were my final thoughts on Chicago. Paul, I'm sure you have plenty to weigh in on both those suggestions. Well, AJ, I was about to go off on a tangent earlier, and you corrected me um, off camera, and that was with a look at the long-term injury situation with this club. Three guys finished the season on LTIR. They are included, and their salary cap commitments are included in the projection that you highlighted off the top that leads them to have only a small opportunity to add players here with the $9 million that they have to spend. Uh, actually, it would be probably closer to five and a half if you take the salary cap down to 81 and a half because cap friendly goes up to 84 million at the end of this year. And we're not expecting that at all. So really the tight fit ex- is exacerbated by the fact that these three guys finished the year on LTIR and they've got some tough calls there and, and buying them out, as you suggested uh, with the Calvin DeHaan example, only saves them a little bit of money. So really, really hamstrung the Hawks are as opposed to the Boston Bruins. It kind of tells you what what's at both ends of the spectrum in terms of the salary cap limitations that some teams may face where other teams are, are sitting pretty. And I'll I should. I think you've hit on one team at the uh, each end of the spectrum here, and so uh, good for you for taking this tactic to start us off in the series. So yeah, we'll dive into the the Anaheim Ducks. Yeah, as you mentioned, Paul, um, you know it's a it's a little bit tricky if, if you're on cap friendly because, like I said, they project for 84 million still for next year. But uh, you know when you're checking out these articles on the site, I've done the math. Uh, and everything for our listeners and, and our readers there to assume an 81 and a half cap. So for the Ducks, looking at next year, 12 forwards under contract. Again, as Paul mentioned, this includes anybody that is currently this season on LTIR. I'm factoring them into those uh, contracts that are already signed for next year. So 12 forwards, five defensemen, one net miner, which means they have five spots to fill. Uh, you look at the price tag for those guys under contract, it's not outrageous at uh, just over $69 million. But then you have to look at the fact that they are still on the hook 
for the Corey Perry buyout. And this is the worst year of that buyout in terms of the cap hit. They will be use, uh, wasting $6.625 million on Corey Perry's buyout uh, that they uh, did uh, a couple seasons ago. And that just stings so bad in a year where the cap's not going up. Uh, it's $4 million more than their cap hit by, for his buyout this year and $4.6 million more than the next two years. So it just poor, poor timing uh, for them. So when you factor in the guys they have under contract, Corey Perry's buyout, this leaves Anaheim with just about $5.8 million and five spots to fill. Uh, it's really not going to be fun uh, for their team here to try and figure that out. I think you start, obviously, with your restricted free agents. There's a pair of them in Sonny Milano and Jacob Larson. Uh, I think you're approximately going to look, you know, for Larson, you could issue him a qualifying offer. I I think that's uh, uh, about where he's at, but he did play a lot of games this season. You could get him to maybe sign a one-way deal, but pay him slightly less uh, to save some money. Overall, I ballpark uh, the deal that Christian Jews just signed with this club at a one-year, $1 million. I, I think that would probably end up being Larson's floor. He would make, if I'm his agent at least, I'm making the argument that Larson's been with the team longer. Um, you know, he's more established. And so if you're willing to give Jews, who just, you know, was traded to them uh, at the deadline here, $1 million, I think, uh, you know, Larson would command about 1.25 again in a two point uh, two to three year deal. Milano's contract negotiation is going to be, I think, a fight. And I wouldn't be surprised to see this one go to arbitration. Um, you look at 2017-18, puts in 22 points in 55 games for the Blue Jackets. But then the following year, he only played eight games for the club. He spent most of the year in the minors. Didn't play a lot of games since coming over uh, at the trade deadline here but was super productive with five points in nine appearances. So it's this whole roller coaster. Um, I, I think he absolutely will be asking for more money than the club wants to give him. I think if both sides could agree to about that 1.25, 1.5 million, I, th- I think that would be you know great for them. But I would expect Milano probably is looking for closer to that too. Um, so I expect this to be a pretty contentious battle and one that could end up going into arbitration and, and we'll see how that all shakes out. Paul, what say you about the restricted free agents here? Well, I'm looking at the club, first of all, before I dive into that point, uh, I'm looking at the club on cap friendly, AJ. And uh, another point of confusion that I had initially before I sorted it out was uh, picking up on the discussion we had with the previous team we looked at. The way they account for the roster size is 16 players here. However, they include the injury reserve cap hit for two more players. So really, that's a total of it should be a total of 18 players on the on the entire roster rather than the 16 that they highlight here. If I do my math correctly, and that means that they have to find a way to find at least two or three more players to fill out the roster. And you mentioned that they're sitting at 75 plus million dollars committed already, leaving them approximately five and a half, maybe six million dollars at the outside to put the put the lineup together. And so you mentioned 
mentioned the RFA situation of note up front with Sonny Milano. This guy is another guy who has a wealth of offensive skills, but certainly is viewed by me at least as a one-way player. Hasn't shown a two-way game yet, and that's what's held him back in terms of playing anything more than a fringe role on the bottom six and the occasional look on the power play and maybe occasionally on the second line here. But he needs to straighten out his uh, 200-foot game, as they say, before he makes a big leap uh, in terms of the salary cap bite here. I don't think he's proven enough to work uh, work more than a $2 million commitment out of the club in that way. And then Jacob Larson, a young defenseman who has shown me enough that he's going to be a part of this mix going forward. And uh, they have an interesting foursome ahead of him in terms of the depth chart. But I think Larson certainly fits into the top four longer term and I think he's a guy that they're going to spend a little bit more money on than uh, than Milano in terms of the next contract that he faces and that leaves us to the gold goaltending situation they have Gibson and the Nets committed for 6.4 million dollars and they're going to look for an understudy uh, probably not going to be Ryan Miller I think he's heading into his age 40 season and so that means you look into the depth part of the roster here Anthony Stolarz is a guy that we've both talked about in the past AJ and hit, heading into his 20 age 27 season he's signed for the next two seasons so maybe that's the answer to the goaltending mix and if it is they do have some ex- excess capacity at the salary cap window but wouldn't it be interesting to see if they try to pursue a deal with Seattle I'll throw this out for you for you to react and say maybe they work a deal with Seattle to lose that Corey Perry contract giving up a draft pick and a prospect do you think that the expansion club might bite on something like that I know that we looked at your ultimate lineup and it was hard up against the cap but mine was substantially lower and my team in my setup could afford to do something like that it could be really interesting to see what kind of prospects they get out of them and I'll remind our listeners that the Vegas GM George McPhee, who I think is one of the smartest executives in, in all the NHL, did a great job in parlaying situations like this into extra picks where he, he took uh, teams to task in terms of what they might do with their protected roster and then what is left over and what those teams would like to protect and then at what cost. So this is my, maybe one of those situations where Seattle comes calling and saying, you know, you've got a tough situation with Corey Perry. We'll help you out if dot, dot, dot. What do you think? Well, here's the problem, Paul. I, I I could be totally wrong, but I don't think you can buy or trade a bought-out deal. He's not on LTIR, which is what we saw with some of those other deals. Like a, a Nathan Horton is technically still under contract. He just spends all year on LTIR for, for your Maple Leafs. The problem is Corey Perry is playing in Dallas um, on a new contract, and this is just the, the cap hit from the buyout right. that they negotiated a right. couple years ago. And I'm not sure that you can trade um, – you know, buyout cap space. Uh, certainly, if you could, I think it'd be interesting. But um, as far as I'm aware, you can't necessarily do that. So I don't think that's the answer here. Mm-hmm. I think what their answer is going to be is ultimately in this next group of guys I'll talk about, the unrestricted free agents uh, that they have coming on to next year. You've got Michael Delzato, who had a pretty good season for them. Matt Irwin uh, from kind of that Nashville uh, defensive, uh, you know, grooming center as they have theirs. Didn't really play a lot here. You mentioned Ryan Miller as well. And then Patrick Eves, uh, who spent a good chunk of the, I think all of the season rather, on LTIR. Uh, I, I don't expect any of these guys to resign. I think in the case of, of Miller and Eves, you, you probably have could see uh, retirement announcements here uh, once the season is, is officially over. Um, 
But for the sake of argument, I, I will make a brief argument in favor of Miller and Delzato. Again, uh, as you can read in, in my article, I don't think they're going to sign either of these guys. But Ryan Miller is the winningest U.S.-born netminder in NHL history. Uh, he's already shown that he's willing to take a pretty low cap hit. He played for just $1.125 million this year. Uh, if he wanted to come back on a, on a small deal, uh, it certainly might be doable. But as you said, uh, Anthony Stolarts is ready to come up from the minors and, and be the number two guy. So I, I don't think it'll happen, but uh, Miller's you know contract uh, is – or. Uh, uh, resume is certainly intriguing in in some aspect. As I said with Delzato, 15 points in 49 games this year, averaged over 18 and a half minutes of ice time. But unfortunately, you have younger guys like uh, Brendan Gould, who just signed a deal, um, you know, just uh, a little bit ago, and we'll talk about that in a, in a second. I, he's on this article in terms of uh, a free agent, but he actually just signed with his club. Uh, and so they've got a couple youngsters looking to make more moves. And I just don't see how the numbers work to keep any of those four guys. Paul, I think you're probably with me on this one, but I'll, I'll ask you anyway. Do, do you re-sign any of these guys or do you kind of just let them all walk? I think you can make the case for re-signing Michael Delzato. He's the only one of the four that intrigues me in any way, shape, or form. But that that decision might be mitigated by the fact that they have a couple other players in the minor league system that we'll touch on that, that should challenge for a job. And you mentioned Gooley is one of them in the mix that uh, I think could be a factor before too long uh, to help this club out. And uh, so, uh, so maybe they don't even need any of the four. But of the four that you, that you brought up, I could only make a case for, for Del Zotto, as I suggested. Well, to those minor league free free agents, uh, I'll start off with with two of them because I think it's it's an interesting exercise in terms of you can read what Kyle and I wrote on these two guys, and then you look at the deals that they actually signed uh, on Sunday, I believe, after after our article came out. So the first one is Brendan Gooley, uh, who signed a one way contract, and that's kind of the biggest uh, point here. He is set to make eight hundred uh, eight hundred thousand next year but on a one-way deal. And so that pretty much seals his fate in terms of being on the 23-man roster at the start. And that's why I think you're going to see Delzato and Irwin both be let go. They also have another guy they signed about a week ago who uh, isn't in the article, uh, Yanni Hakenpa, I believe is how you would say that. Uh, He signed a one-year deal as well, or one-way deal one-way deal as well and so he figures to be in the mix there now that doesn't mean you can't move these guys to the minors but generally you then have to put them on waivers and you risk potentially losing them as a result of that Uh, the other guy that signed since this article was written was sam carrick i think uh kyle and i both basically wrote off carrick as yeah sign him to a two-way deal it's it's fine um, you know, that's the kind of guy you want in your minor league system. Well, he signed, he's another guy that signed a one-way deal. Um, and so really interesting to see how that changes kind of the landscape here for everybody else. The interesting part for me comes from the other three guys that we have to talk about here. Again, these are guys currently in the minors who played at least one NHL game this last season. And that's Kiefer Sherwood, Troy Terry, and Chase DeLeo. Look, there's a a whole bunch of decisions they can make here. I think ultimately, I don't know that any of these guys 
gets over uh, the $1 million mark, especially because they're all RFAs. Uh, and so they won't, you just don't have a lot of leverage in terms of that. Uh, Terry played the most games of any of these guys last year, 47. But you look at the last, you know, couple games before the, the season went um, on hiatus and they, he was a healthy scratch. So they're obviously not totally sold on that. I think he'll be the closest of those three to get uh, near that $1 million mark, but I don't expect any of them to really top that. Uh, if, if you check out the article, I put them kind of in, uh, in this order, Terry at uh, 975,000, Sherwood at 950,000, and then DeLeo is the kind of cheapest option at 800,000. I would expect all of those across the board to be two-way deals as well so that they could be moved to the minors if necessary. Paul, uh, what's your take on, on obviously the, you know, the Carrick and, and Gouley deals that, uh, you know, we were going to talk about, but they've signed over the weekend. And then the other three guys here. I think they're smart moves, AJ, in terms of locking them up for reasonable amounts of money and very early in their careers, they're going to fit in in the bottom end of the, the structures on defense and, and forward respectively. What offers this club flexibility in a year beyond what we're talking about is the contract situation with Ryan Getzlaff at 8.25 million and David Backus more particularly at 4.5 million definitely not going to be back uh, as part of the mix once the contract runs out at the end of next season that leaves them approximately 13 million dollars to play with down the road and guys that we've mentioned here in terms of being in the prospect pool or looking at uh, coming off their RFA situations as well as some of the other guys that are younger than these guys have a chance to prove themselves and take a bit of that share and put it into their own bank accounts down the road. So th- this is a really good case for competition in a rebuild situation. And I think that the younger players that commit to signing for a year here and showing a bit of an ups- upside certainly stand to hit the pay window uh, very well with their next deal coming out of uh, situations a year from now. So that's where I'm looking at the, the window of opportunity that exists in, in Anaheim once the other deals fall off. Of course, you're talking about Ryan Getz the signature player of this team for a long while coming to the end of the road heading into his age 36 season with an 8.25 million dollar cap hit they're happy to have him around but i don't think he goes much beyond that year and and that salary to offer the flexibility down the road well in terms of final thoughts for the anaheim ducks i you know i've kind of it sounds like i've panned the Corey buyout a little bit um i i really want to just more highlight that this is the the worst year for this to have happened in terms of a flat cap for Anaheim. Overall, I think it was a good choice to buy out the remaining years of that contract. He would have been uh, on the hook for $8.625 million, so they are still saving some money for a player that they just didn't see fitting in uh, with the club anymore. So ultimately, I do think it was the right choice, especially at the time you know they bought out the deal uh, in, in the summer of 2019. And I think it was the right uh, call for the organization. I think it's just unfortunate for them that this is when uh, this is when the worst of the, the four years that they have them on, on the hook there is, is coming up. The other kind of option that I kind of looked at in terms of ways to maybe generate some cap room, you could buy out the contract of David Backus. Remember, he was traded here, um, you know, and, and kind of fit in a little bit better here, it seems like. The downside to that is the Ducks aren't the ones who receive the full benefit of buying out that contract uh, because he has retained salary with Boston still. So um, that would be 
they would only get about 1.5 million in, in space. But things are going to be pretty tight, and so that's certainly an option. And then trading Sonny Milano uh, is the other kind of call that that could open up the door. You know, he's one of those intriguing guys that seems to bounce around a little bit because everybody thinks he'll fit in with their system, and and he may or may not here in Anaheim. I think it's still too early to tell, um, but. I think he has uh, some value on the open market, and you can make an argument uh, for trading him. So those were kind of the last uh, couple thoughts I had for the Anaheim Ducks. Paul, anything else that you wanted to mention here? I'm kind of curious to see what they do with the goaltending situation. Ryan Miller reaching the end of a very distinguished career, AJ. Uh, I think he's a fringe qualifier for the Hockey Hall of Fame, I'll say. Maybe maybe even a stronger candidate than that based on the length and, and quality of his career. So it'll be interesting to see what our listeners think about that particular comment. I'm not saying it's a hot take or not, but does it evolve into one? And then your take on Sonny Milano is an interesting one. Coming off the entry-level deal, I see a lot of offensive skill in this guy, but just things just haven't twigged in terms of that 200 foot game so uh, if he's expendable does the do, do things come together and, and then when he's wearing another sweater i don't know it uh, interesting circumstance there and again that compares to my thoughts on the much talked about Jesperi Kotkaniemi thing that got us into hot water this past <laughs> week too so uh, it's just the tip of the iceberg in terms of the 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 water cooler talk if you will the topics that are hot in in each of the roster situations that we're going to go through and i think we highlighted several in each of the three teams that that you brought out today so again congratulations on the great work that you've done here and uh, for for teaching me a few of the nuances that interesting concept that i thought i had a handle on but i think you're right aj in terms of the buy trading the buyout amounts i often wondered why teams didn't go after those those uh, excess bits in terms of trade deals and maybe you've provided the answer there uh, definitively so uh, I thank you for that and uh, for leading us in this particular situation with that we're going to pivot to uh, a look at our draft from the 2014 year AJ and uh, I think it's your turn to go first this is a rather top heavy draft that I suggested would uh, give us each a chance to get at least one superstar into the mix and I'm going to say that I think it's your turn to go first, AJ. So uh, why don't you lead us off in that regard, and we'll uh, we'll take it from there. Yeah, open and shut case for the first overall pick, in, in my opinion, and I would be surprised if anybody disagreed with me here. Uh, Leon Dreisaitl, he went third overall to Edmonton. I don't think, uh, you know, Buffalo maybe would regret having taken Sam Reinhardt Savkin a little, but overall he's been fine. Uh, and Aaron Ekblad went first overall to Florida. Um, I don't think any of those teams are disappointed uh, in who they took, but Edmonton certainly is happy with Leon Dreisaitl. He is the only uh, player from this group that's over 400 points in his career so far, and actually he's averaging a point per game uh, at, at this early pace. So I think it was an open and shut case here for me on the first overall pick. Well, and and certainly a pretty obvious one too, but Hey, I'm not going to quarrel with the ability to take a guy like David Pasternak with my first pick. He was drafted 25th overall by the Boston Bruins, and there's no question they found some value there with the fact that he is actually the guy who leads among all goal scorers from this class, AJ, and uh, certainly a big part of the Bruins' success from the moment he, he donned the spoke to be. So uh, I, I think off the top, we, we've each got a superstar in the mix and uh, cornerstones for our teams for years to come. Where do you go after your first pick? 
Well, I think I'm going to stick with, you know, if you uh, if you go just by overall points uh, in their career, I'm going to go with the next guy on the list, and that's Dylan Larkin. Went 15th to Detroit, 266 points uh, in his career. You know, just too good of an opportunity to, you know, lock up. I know Dreisaitl plays on the wing sometimes, and you could certainly do that, but have two kind of top centers uh, right off the get, uh, it was uh, too good of an opportunity to pass up on. Yeah, I like that pick. You know, anybody who's listened to me on this show knows that I think Dylan Larkin is a cornerstone for whatever success is in the offing for Detroit down the road. He's going to be a linchpin for this team for years to come. Maybe even a Steve Eiserman light is the comparison that I'll make this early in his career. A guy who's already amassed 266 points early on, topped 100 goals and played less than 400 games and certainly a signature piece of of your team going forward. That affords me the opportunity to stay in order in terms of the players who have amassed the top points in in, uh, the time since they've turned pro. I'm delving into a third-round pick, 79th overall, Braden Point out of the Moose Jaw in the Western Canadian Hockey League. Uh, He's jumped into the major leagues, didn't have a lot of fanfare early on, maybe because of the draft position, but certainly has emerged as a real cornerstone to what they're they're built in Tampa and what uh, is in store for the foreseeable future. This guy's an offensive dynamo and pretty good at the other end of the ice too. So a good solid two-way center. And uh, I think uh, I'm looking forward to the way that he might pair up with David Pasternak in my lineup going forward. Well, I think I have to make the call here and, and take, uh, I think, again, not there shouldn't be too much uh, contention on this. The top defenseman uh, in this draft, and he went first overall to Florida, that's Aaron Ekblad. Uh, you know, I've, I've got my two centers. Uh, I needed to, to take a look at D, uh, and he, you know, leads the way uh, in this entire class in terms of games played. Um, so has kind of that, that veteran experience as well. And so uh, I, I felt like it was a good time to jump to the D. Paul, uh, from there, I, you know, there's some quality candidates, but does anybody else stand out? Or are you sticking with your forwards for now? Well, I want to comment on Eric Bla- Aaron Ekblad first, AJ. After the first couple of seasons of his career, everybody was saying, this guy's going to be a Hall of Famer, he's a dominant player, this and that. And then he kind of went MIA for a little bit, but he certainly bolstered his profile with a resurgent season this past year. Uh, I think he's back to the level that he started with his, his uh, trajectory in the NHL. So uh, I think think while there was a blip in the road you did pick the best defenseman in this class and he is by a wide margin in 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 my opinion i will uh, continue along here and i'm gonna pick a guy that i know you you think you'd be breaking my heart if if you picked him before i did but i'm gonna grab willie nylander next a guy who i think is just coming into his own in terms of being the player that he could be for the foreseeable future. He did uh, cause a lot of commotion with the contract negotiation that he took this team to task a year ago, and he sat out half a season, but we saw the value that is in him. He and David Pasternak are great buddies, and they've pushed each other uh, throughout the early parts of their career. And I'm not suggesting for a second that Nylander is in Pasternak's class today. But I think he's going to narrow the gap a little bit over the next five years, and I'm quite happy to grab him with my third pick in in this particular draft. He was drafted by the Maple Leafs eighth overall, and I think uh, he's right about in the same spot, more or less, with the selection that I just made. Well, so I, I you know, you look at this list, and there's plenty of of uh, forwards here, uh, wingers really that that I think could 
work well uh, in combination here. So because there's just so many choices, um, I'm going to lock up my blue line and, and really kind of leave uh, things getting a little bit thin for you. And, and I'm going to do that by taking Anthony D'Angelo. Um, came into this season, had a really breakout year um, this this year. You know, the numbers, uh, first couple of seasons, he didn't play a lot of games, so his numbers were down. Put together a solid, what I would really call first uh, full NHL season last year, and then this year kind of the breakout campaign with 53 points. Uh, and so I like uh, D'Angelo here uh, to kind of round out my blue line. He was selected 19th overall by Tampa Bay. So I got two uh, strong D. Paul, uh, you're running out of options here. Um you stole the defense, so I'm going to try and take a goalie that I think might upset you a little bit. I'm going to go with Elvis Merzlikens from the Columbus Blue Jackets, third overall, third round pick rather, 76th overall, out of Lugano in the Swiss League. And he is second in terms of NHL games played in the Nets by any goalie from this class. But I think when all is said and done, he's going to be the best guy out of this class. So I'm happy to grab him and uh, kind of pivot from your locking up the defense to me getting maybe i think the best goalie in the mix i actually disagree with you on that one and i'll I'll talk about my goalie pick a little bit later but there's a ton of untested uh you know options here and and like i said when i make my pick i'll run through those a little bit so uh i think that just affords me to get one of those wingers that i that i talked about here um and i'll go right to the top of the the points list here nikolai ehlers uh selected ninth overall by winnipeg 369 NHL games, 257 points in those contests. Um, and, hey, look at look at this top line, Paul. I'll move Dreisaitl to the wing. I'll have Larkin in the middle and Nikolai Ehlers on the other side. I don't know that there's a lot of uh, teams that could put a line like that together that could even keep up in terms of speed and, and, uh, and skating with those guys. So I'm happy to have it, and uh, I'll let you uh, – you know, to go too early on the goalies. I think you reached for that one. Well, I, I got to tell you, uh, maybe when they announce your starting forward lineup, they might take a line from the Indy 500 and say, gentlemen, start your engines, because that is probably a very quick, uh, definitely a quick, pretty quick trio that you've amassed, and certainly the linchpin uh, dry side of, of all of them. I'm going to take uh, forward next a uh, guy who I think is just coming into his own in Nashville. He was the 11th pick overall out of Finland, uh, and I'm talking talking about Kevin Fiala, who he had an outstanding finish to this uh, commuted season, and I think he is going to move up the ranks when all is said and done, and this forward class is evaluated. I think he's going to move up much higher than the 10th overall pick in this particular draft that uh, I just made. Well, Paul, I think you missed out on taking the best player that Nashville took in this draft, and so I'll take him instead, and that's Victor Arvidsson. Uh, you know, some some injury concerns uh, this year, but overall, I think uh, those will be behind him and he will be back to being a, you know, top line, second line, maybe producer for the Predators uh, and really a fantastic talent and, and a really quality goal scorer. You know, you look at, uh, you know, the, the goal scoring list, obviously you highlighted Pasternak led the way, Dreisaitl was second, but third overall in terms of career goals on this list is Arvidsson right now. Um, you know, for this draft class. So taking in the fourth round, 112th overall by Nashville, I I think he's actually their best uh, pick in this draft rather than the first round talent, Calvin Fiala. 
I'm going to go to the Buffalo Sabres, the second pick in the draft uh, that year, and he would rank sixth in terms of uh, overall points in this particular draft class to date. Of course, I'm speaking of uh, the Kootenai Ice graduate Sam Reinhart at this point in the draft, AJ. Well, of course, I can't get through any one of these without taking a Penguins player. And if I'm moving Dreisaitl to the wing, that means I, I need a second-line center. He was af- actually taken uh, 24th overall by Vancouver. I'll take Jared McCann here. Uh, 310 games under his belt, 123 points. Uh, and I think really uh, just starting to, you know, he had a couple good seasons in Florida. I think he'll get more opportunities, uh, you know, in to match up against uh, weaker competition with being the third-line center uh, in uh, in Pittsburgh, and so I think he'll uh, have you know solid production heading into the future without having the pressure of kind of carrying a, a second line. And AJ, I give you the nod. You got the top two defensemen in this draft, but I got to start filling out my back end, and I'm going to look at. Uh, there's about four guys that I might consider here, and I will lean on the fourth in terms of the total points amassed to date. I'm looking at the potential and the upside that Devin Taves have shown in the last year. I like what the big steps that he took. And so he'll be my first defenseman that I pick in this draft for going three other guys who outscored him actually uh, career to date. I think he's going to close the gap on those three guys pretty quickly. Well, I think I'm going to go next uh, with another winger here. And I, the guy I would argue was the value pick of this draft uh, he was taken in the sixth round, 171st overall by the Sharks, and that's Kevin LeBanc. Uh, has played uh, a phenomenal, you know, early part of his career: 50 goals, 99 helpers, and in, in 284 games. And I think really uh, the the value pick of this draft, uh, however you want to shake it. And uh, I'm going to stay in the first round, AJ, and I'm going to look at Sam Bennett next uh, from the Calgary Flames. I think he's another guy that that fits into a pretty nice offense that I'm amassing uh, all of a sudden and uh, quite happy to grab him. He was fourth overall in the draft, slides to the 17th pick in the draft, that the redraft that you and I are doing. All right. Well, I will. Uh, let's see. There's still some intriguing forwards here, I think. Um, you know, there, there's a couple younger guys, um, Alex Tuck, Robbie Fabry, I think are both under consideration. Um, but one guy whose game I've loved for a really long time, and I think another guy who's kind of just getting an opportunity, is Kasperi Kapanen, was taken 22nd overall uh, by the Pittsburgh Penguins, headed to the Maple Leafs in the infamous Phil Kessel trade. Um, as much as I was sad to see him go at the time, uh, it you know got us two Stanley Cups by having Phil the thrill. So happy to have made that trade. Um, but if I'm taking kind of a younger, up-and-coming guy, uh, he's the one for me. And I'm going to go back to defense to fill out my quota on the blue line, a minimum quota uh, for a second defenseman. And look, there's three picks that I, I would consider here in Montour, Sandheim, and Pedersen. Do I take the shot across the bow and pick up your guy, Marcus Pedersen? I think he has an upside that we haven't really seen the full measure of, but I'm going to bypass him and I'm going to take Travis Sanheim out of Philadelphia. I think he's slowly rising through the ranks of, of that defensive structure and had a really nice season this season that tells me that he's going to be a fixture there for a long while. And I'm quite happy to grab him with my last pick, though there are, you know, it could have been a coin flip with the other, other two guys as well. 
Yeah, so um, I think we each have one more pick. Is, it, is that uh, you correct? Just, you're done. This is uh, last pick for you, and then I got one more. All right. Well, uh, I think it's time then to, to take a netminder here. And so, uh, you know, I'll kind of, you know, you took the guy who played the second most games. Um, one candidate would be the guy who's played the most NHL games at just 37 is Thatcher Demko. You could look at a guy uh, like uh, Alex Nedeljkovic. Uh, you know, you took Mirza Lincolns. You've got Igor Shesterkin for the Rangers, who's just starting to play some games. But I'm actually going to take a guy that hasn't played an NHL game yet. Um, but his numbers in, in the KHL are just so good um, that I'll, I will take the risk here. And I'm going to go Ilya Sorokin, uh, was drafted in the third round, 78th overall by the Islanders. I will expect to see him donning their uniform and manning their crease heading into next season. I think uh, he's about to make that move uh, over here, although that hasn't been finalized yet. And so I will make the move with him and take him as my last uh, last pick here. And my, for my last pick, I'm going to take uh, a player from the Metro Division that uh, has evolved into a pretty good scorer, a second-line winger on the Washington Capitals, picked 13th overall in the draft and slides a little bit in our draft. But, boy, ton of offensive skill and speed. And Jakob Vrana, I'm pretty happy to grab him with my last pick. So, uh, you know what? This is a, an interesting thing, the way this thing shook out, AJ. You certainly stole uh, the thunder with grabbing two the two top defensemen. You went for uh, an unproven commodity at the NHL in the Nets, but uh, I, I think it's inter- it'll be interesting to see uh, down the road if we keep these rosters intact to see who outpoints who offensively. Uh, certainly some dynamic players on both of our rosters here. So uh, a draft that wasn't too long ago, and yet it's yielded several players that have really reached the, the front ranks of the NHL players around the league. So... Uh, very interesting and deep draft when we we looked at it again today and uh, I hope our listeners have enjoyed uh, the redrafting process here and maybe uh, we will invite them to take us to task with some of our choices as well as uh, the comments that we've made on some of the teams certainly we had an interesting dialogue this past week we've touched on it with a couple of comments made from the prior weeks and uh, I don't know if you have any closing thoughts in in any way shape or form uh, that you'd like to get off your chest before we do sign off today yeah, just uh, a reminder to check out all the articles that we referenced already. They're up on Rotowire. As I said, they're free uh, to take a look at. So dive into those. Uh, take a look. Tweet at us your thoughts and comments about those or, or comment on the article as well. Look for the Buffalo Sabres to come out later today. Um, that one has been an interesting exercise because Buffalo does not have a lot of guys uh, signed for next season. So that has been um a pretty interesting one that I'm excited to talk to uh, through with you next week when we get to that uh, and a few others. And then finally, uh, I will make a case for uh, America's Ryan Miller. Uh, I think he will make the Hall of Fame here, Paul. Uh, to call him fringe, I think, is a, is a little weak. Uh, you know, currently the third, third uh, among active players in wins, 15th overall in career wins. Again, as I said, the most uh, wins of any U.S. born netminder. Um, I would be shocked and saddened if he didn't make the Hall of Fame. Also, a Vesna Trophy winner back in 2009, 2010, um, that season. So I think he'll make the Hall of Fame. It won't be first ballot, 
um, but he'll definitely get in. Yeah, I agree with you. Maybe it was a bit of a weak call on my part, but on reflection, you look at the length of his career and, and the decorations and awards and recognition that he's won along the way uh, with being one of the winningest goalies in his tenure in the league. Uh, certainly for me, a guy that should be uh, recognized in in uh, the pantheon of, of greatness that is the Hockey Hall of Fame. That wraps up this episode of Podcast with Statsman and AJ, folks. Our next episode, a week from today, where we'll take on an, uh, the next series of, of teams that AJ highlights in his ongoing series of excellent profiles of, of the teams and their salary cap issues. Please remember to send your comments or questions on Twitter. Follow me, Paul Bruno, at Statsman22. You can follow AJ at AJScholes24. As always, we invite you to listen into podcasts to get our tips to stay out of the competition in your fantasy hockey planning and research. So long, everybody. 